The Naval Supply Systems Command keeps the Navy machinery and people equipped and ready to go. And it has some award-winning programs for ensuring small business participation in its procurements. At the recent Sea Air Space Conference, I caught up with NAVSUP's Director of Small Business, Chris Espenshade. You have done some real innovation in bringing small business at the Supply Systems Command. Maybe tell us the range of things you supply, where DLA leaves off and you take over, that kind of thing. Like, what's your yeah. space? Yeah, what, what makes this really unique is the Navy's supply system, specifically for weapon system support. So, of course, what we call Class 9 material, where we're supporting the fleet's need for any asset that's turned in or a new production. So that's the best way to differentiate us with DLA. They're more specifically on the consumable side. Of course, they have petroleum as well. But think of us as the last tactical mile end-to-end integration of logistics and sustainment for the Navy. And has that produced any of the issues that other areas of the economy have had with supply chain and so forth? Yeah, I mean, that's one thing we talk about a lot is consolidation. Across the DOD space, it's been the last 30 years of major system uh, support from defense contractors. But more specifically, when we look at what impacts we've had from sequestration and kind of limiting the budget from the fleet and what that does to weapon system support. So as that demand signal dries up, a lot of our traditional vendors are exiting that market. That's one of the great opportunities for small business to pick up is that niche of, hey, in the last phase of sustainment of a weapon system cycle, we have a lot of opportunity for folks to manufacture or repair and overhaul some of these assets. So uh, that's what we've really been focusing on from a strategic standpoint within NAFSUP. So you're looking for small businesses to supply both services and manufactured items. Yeah, so um, there's obviously a reseller opportunity there, but there's also the opportunity to become an approved source through what we call Hardware Systems Command. So we support the end items for NAVC, NAVAIR. So uh, we work really closely with our engineering departments to approve these additional sources of supply. And what we've done last year and this year is put out a source development opportunity list. So we've put out what we call 2,900 national stock numbers of saying, hey, we either only have one source of supply or we want to do some additional source development there to get a broader marketplace, you know, improve competition numbers as well as opportunity to support increased capacity if needed. So we have that opportunity listing for manufacturers and for uh, repair overhaul capability. Uh, We have that out on SAM.gov. A couple of questions there. First, of, say, a weapon system support, how many of the support items are actually themselves commercial? I mean, the whole system is not a commercial system. But are there, when you mentioned resellers, are there parts that are standard that are put into these things? Yeah, so... Like nuts one, and bolts, that type of stuff? Yeah, so typically the subcomponents, subassemblies, those sorts of things. And it really, it really depends on how, in the front half, how we've provisioned these items. So if it's down to the subcomponent assembly and we can quickly swap out, you know, COTS type of material, that's some of the challenges we see on the IT space is microelectronics. Let's say we have a failure of a subcomponent assembly, but because it hasn't been provisioned and down that low, we have to go after the entire assembly versus just that piece. Right. Okay. So these 2,900 commodities then are out there. And you mentioned they're on SAM.gov to develop new sources. Mm-hmm. They have to know about SAM.gov and be able to navigate Correct. that whole system with their unique identifier and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, if you're interested in the federal marketplace, you have to understand what SAM.gov is. And that's the availability of opportunities across the federal marketplace. 
so you can quickly filter and narrow down specifically to Navy and NAVSUP if need be. But we also have, within the NAVSUP Business Opportunities webpage, we have uh, the last six years of our procurement data available that they can come take a look at, as well as they can pull it off of SAM.gov and see across the federal marketplace and, and filter down strategically to see who buys what I sell. Sure. We're speaking with Chris Espenshade. He's Director of Small Business at the Naval Supply Systems Command. And what are some of the other innovations? You're known for innovation of small business, and everybody's looking to get more in and more businesses and more business to them. Yeah, we were fortunate to be selected last year for the FY21 Secretariat's Cup. So again, that's the lead small business office across the Navy. And a lot of that was resulting of how we're utilizing DOD's mentor-protege program in which we pair a traditional manufacturer or OEM with a small business. And what we've done with that program is we've reached out to folks that traditionally support these weapon systems. We said, hey, for the business that you're transitioning out of, let's match up with a small business and help them fill that void and bridge that gap when they exit the marketplace. And it's a great opportunity for small business to be a niche. And your measures are percentage of dollars for small business but also the number and types of small businesses that participate. Yeah. So traditionally, how the SBA kind of grades all the agencies is we have five major categories, small business, small disadvantaged business, uh, service-disabled, veteran-owned, women-owned, and then hub-zone categories. And that's percentage of total dollar value. But what we also do at NAVSUP is we look at what we call the uh, small business effectiveness rate. And that's how many of each action went to small business, not just percentage of total dollar value. So that quickly means that each individual action is very important to us in terms of advocating for small business. And is 2023 looking up for you, do you think? Last year, we had a record year for obligations to small business across uh, almost all categories. In FY22, we're probably a little bit behind. You know, a lot of that is budget impacts. But in terms of small business impact and our ability, right now we're trending better than we were last year and overall. Chris Espenshade is Director of Small Business at the Naval Supply Systems Command. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly 
gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.